the Old Testament book of Nehemiah in chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18, and we're going to be looking at a message entitled, Building Through Adversity. And tonight we're going to examine a portion of this awesome book of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah and the Jews who were building the wall faced some very real adversity. But before we look into that text tonight, let's talk about this word adversity for a brief moment. Adversity can be defined as an event or oftentimes a series of events which opposes. It can be described as calamity, affliction, or a state of serious continued difficulty or misfortune. I'm sure in some capacity, we have all faced some version of adversity in our lives, but I doubt many of our lives compare to that of Louis Zamperini. Uh, if you guys don't know, maybe the name is ringing a bell, but you're not familiar with who he is, uh, they made a movie about Louis Zamperini that I would encourage you to watch. It's amazing. It's called Unbroken. And Louis was a young man, he was, he was born to two Italian immigrants in 1917. He grew up in Torrance, California, about an hour, give or take, away from here. And he quickly became a track and field star. This man was fast. He could run. And in 1936, at the age of 19, Louis competed in the Olympics in Germany. Five years later... Louis went on to serve his country in the United States Army Air Forces. And he served in World War II as a bombardier in the B-24 Liberators in the Pacific. On a search and rescue mission one day, Zamperini, his plane, experienced a mechanical malfunction and crashed into the Pacific Ocean. And after drifting at sea for 47 days, along with his two other crewmates, he landed on the Japanese-occupied islands, the Marshall Islands. And there he was captured as a prisoner of war. He was taken to two different prisoner of war camps in Japan, where he was tortured and beaten by Japanese military personnel, specifically by Mutsuhiro Watanabe, who really had it out for Louis Zamperini, because of Louis' fame as a track star. He was later taken, Louis was, to a new prison camp at a coal factory. And after much adversity at the, at the conclusion of the Second World War, he was finally released. And following the war, he initially struggled to overcome the battle with post-traumatic stress. But later on, he went on to become a Christian evangelist with a strong belief in forgiveness. That's part of his story, how he was able to forgive Watanabe. And he went on to devote his life to at-risk youth. Adversity can make or break you. Louis' life was full of successes and setbacks. He grew up in a very rough environment, and yet he overcame and ended up succeeding in the Olympic Games. That is no small feat. I don't know if any of you have been in the Olympics, but not me. That's a big deal. (laughs) 
He succeeded in the Army Air Forces as he served his country, but experienced a setback when his plane crashed. And he ultimately became a POW for two years. He succeeded in making it through all the torture, through all the pain, only to experience another setback when he battled PTSD as he returned to America. Finally, he succeeded in forgiving his torturers and living for God. You see, Louis's life is a testimony of adversity and what one is to do with adversity. And today, in Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going to learn just how Nehemiah and the Jews would respond to the adversity they were faced with. So we're starting in chapter 4 of Nehemiah tonight, but at this point in the story of Nehemiah, these first three chapters, there's been a lot going on. Earlier on in the beginning of the book, Nehemiah's heart was burdened for the city of Jerusalem that it laid in ruins. And so Nehemiah, he cries out to the Lord asking God for forgiveness on behalf of his people's rebellion and for favor in the sight of King Artaxerxes. And one day, Nehemiah, he's in the presence of the king, and he is visibly sad, which that is not something to be taken lightly. But the king could see that Nehemiah's heart was burdened. And so the king basically asked him, Nehemiah, what's up? To which Nehemiah tells him of the burden that is on his heart. For the city of Jerusalem and how it laid in ruins. And because God had given him favor with the king, the king asked Nehemiah, he says, Nehemiah, what can I do for you then? And Nehemiah requests of the king passage to Jerusalem and permission to begin rebuilding the city. And the king grants this request and sends him on his way to do what God had put in his heart. Nehemiah goes on and begins this effort of rebuilding the wall, and he's with a team of Jews who also wanted their beloved city to be rebuilt. The work is moving along great. It's actually moving along very quickly, record time, until they encounter, Nehemiah and the builders encounter some real adversity, which leads us to our text tonight. So if you all will stand for the reading of God's word, you should be open to Nehemiah 4. It will also be on the screens for you to follow along. I'm going to start with the odd verses, and you pick it up in the evening, in the evening, <laughs> in the evens, and we will end at verse 18. You guys will close it out with verse 18. Verse 1, but it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Here, 
Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. And our adversary said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. So good. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other held a weapon. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that in this time... Lord, that your spirit would be amongst us, teaching us, Lord, encouraging us, building us up as your body. Lord, I pray even for when we leave this place, Lord, that we would go out, Lord, with our faith boosted, Lord, that we would be so encouraged and so on fire to participate in your work in this world. And God, we give you this service in Jesus' name, amen. If you're taking notes tonight, our first point is going to be the adversity they face. Here in the beginning of chapter 4, we learn of these two guys, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. Now Sanballat and Tobiah, they lived around Jerusalem and they were not happy at all about the Jews rebuilding the wall. They were pagan enemies of the Lord who did not have any regard for the God of Israel. Ultimately, what we need to recognize about these guys, I like to think of them as like Tweedledee and Tweedledum, 
But what we need to recognize about them is they were simply instruments in the hands of Satan. Because Satan was the number one opponent against this work of rebuilding the wall. Just like as a child of God, he is our number one opponent against us. Because he hates the Lord. And because he hates the Lord, he hates God's people and he doesn't want anyone to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we're commanded, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so Sanballat, at the beginning of chapter 4, he comes against the Jews. He comes against Nehemiah and the builders. And it says in verse 1 that he was furious and very indignant, meaning that he was full of anger and full of wrath because of what the Jews were doing. And I can't help but think of how many in this Christ-rejecting world are furious and indignant when the people of God rise up for biblical values and stand against the wickedness that is being propagated in this culture. It's the same thing. They are furious and very indignant. Look back down in your Bibles at verses 2 and 3 and look what Sanballat and Tobiah, how they mocked the Jews and their rebuilding of the wall. Sanballat, he says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? And then Tobiah, Tweedledum chimes in, whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Ultimately, what Sanballat and Tobiah are attempting to do was discourage Nehemiah and the Jews from continuing the work of God. They were puppets in Satan's hand. And this closely relates to the Christian life, even today. Though this is from years, years ago, hundreds, thousands years ago, this closely relates to the battle that you and I find ourselves in today. Because if you're a true Christ follower, then you are to be actively involved in building the kingdom of God. We're not building a physical wall like Nehemiah and the builders were, were but we are building the spiritual kingdom of God and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I, I want to be clear on something. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying what those of the NAR movement teach how they teach that we are the ones who are going to bring heaven down to earth. That is not biblical. Christ is the one who is going to bring heaven down to earth at the second coming. We, we get the, the, the fun job of just riding behind him on horses as he does so. It's awesome. But in the meantime, until that day, you and I are to be busy about the work of the unseen kingdom of God that Christ taught about in his public ministry throughout the Gospels. We have that calling upon our lives, each and every one of us. But unfortunately, many Christians are not very engaged in this kingdom building. 
But those who want to fully live for and please the Lord, we know that this is what we're to be doing. You see, Satan, he absolutely hates when we are doing the work of building God's kingdom. Just like Sanballat and Tobiah hated the rebuilding of the wall, Satan hates us building the kingdom of God. God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom are in direct opposition to one another. Satan's kingdom is of this world. And Jesus, he refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. And because God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom are diametrically opposed to one another, any attempt to build God's kingdom is an attack on Satan's kingdom. And he doesn't take that lightly. In the end, we know that God's going to destroy Satan at the second coming. And in the end, but until then, we must fight back against it every single day. Satan, he uses the same methods and the same schemes against us. He makes every effort to stop us from living for Christ and being effective kingdom builders. And you know, understanding what some of these tactics are is very beneficial for us in fighting back against these tactics. We must know our enemy. And though there are many ways that he tries to do this, I want to focus on three of them tonight with you. Three ways, just three, though there are many, just three tonight. Ways that the enemy tries to stop us from living for Christ and being kingdom builders. The first one is sin. This is one of the main ways that Satan keeps us from living fully for Jesus. He wants us to live lives of sin because he knows that when we're living sin-filled lives, we will be not so effective in building the kingdom of God. We know this in our heart. We all know that when we're entangled in sin, we're, we're not going to be very effective in doing God's work. And we're likely not even going to want to participate in it if we're living lives full of sin. And I want to encourage you, if you're a child of God tonight, but you're bound up in a life of sin, oh man, I love this about our Lord, that repentance and forgiveness is one prayer away. I can remember crystal clear the day that I rededicated my life to the Lord after having backslid for a season of my life. My father was truly there with arms wide open, stretched wide, waiting for his wayward son to return. And if, and if that's speaking to you tonight, just come back to your father. He's been waiting, and he's ready to receive you in love, and he's ready to forgive you. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's one prayer away. Confess your sins to God. Call on his name. The second way that the enemy seeks to keep us from being effective kingdom builders is through lies or through deception. Jesus referred to Satan as the father of lies. And if Satan can get us to believe the lies that he propagates about God about ourselves, 
about what's sin versus what's not sin, about the ways of the world. He lies about all of these things. Since the garden, he's been doing it. He's a liar, the father of lies. But if he can get us to buy into these things, he knows he can effectively stop us from living fully for Christ and being effective kingdom builders. So what are some of these lies that Satan tells us that oftentimes we find ourselves believing? These may sound familiar to you. These are just ones that at times I've even wrestled with. But what about the lie that he tells us that God doesn't love you? Or what about when he says, God's not with you? You're all alone. Or God can't use someone like you. You're, you're too messed up. Hmm. Or when he says you're worthless. I'm not saying that to you. I'm saying that's what he says to us. Or when he says no one cares about you. And we could just, I mean, the list goes on and on. We could come up with a massive list if we all put our brains together. Because he is a liar. And as we grow in the Lord, we ought to become better at discerning these lies. The Bible commands us that we are to take these thoughts and bring them captive and make them obey Christ. It's amazing. It's like this, like you're just there, right? And the enemy, he pulls back his his bow and arrow and he launches that fiery dart and it goes boom, right there. And in that moment, You could do one of two things. You could just like spoon feed, eat it. Or you can recognize, wait a second. Let's take the the lie, God doesn't love me, for example. Wait a second. I know God's word makes it very clear that he does love me. And so you analyze the thought. You don't linger on it, but you analyze it in light of the scriptures, in light of the truth of God's word. And when you recognize this is not a thought that is honoring to God, then you just, just like he shot it back in, you shoot it back out. And you replace it. The way our minds work is our minds are always occupied. Even for guys, you know, my wife will sometimes ask me, what are you thinking about? Nothing. You know, like I'm pretty good at, you know, getting close to thinking nothing, but we're never thinking about nothing, but I'm, I can get pretty close. (laughs) turn my brain off sometimes. But in all seriousness, our minds are always occupied. So if we want to unoccupy it with a lie of the, enem- lie of the enemy, then we need to occupy it with a truth from God's word. We need to replace it. The third way that the enemy seeks to keep us from being effective kingdom builders is through discouragement. And in being fully transparent with you, this one I identify with very much so. You see, Satan is so good at making us discouraged. He knows that if he can't get us with sin, that if he can't get us with lies, oftentimes he could get us with discouragement. And this is precisely the tactic that Tobiah and Sanballat were using against Nehemiah and the Jews. Be assured of this truth. You know, they were mocking Nehemiah. Sanballat and Tobiah, they were mocking Nehemiah and the Jews. 
But be assured of this truth. If you're ever mocked or ridiculed for your faith, the Bible says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Ooh, I love that. He's not mocked. Too many Christians, we, we tend to walk around discouraged because of we're ridiculed for this or mocked for that. You know, Satan, he'll, he'll really use anything to discourage us. He'll use life circumstances. He'll use other people. He'll use this, that, whatever. Car breaks down. It could be anything. He tries to use it to keep us down. But the Bible tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. God is not in the business of making us discouraged. I think some of us need to recognize that tonight, that God is not in the business of trying to make us feel that way, to try to make us feel discouraged. When we fall, when we're weary, when we've hardly got anything left, God stands us back up and he tells us to move forward again. Proverbs 24, 16 says, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by a calamity. Now on this topic of discouragement being a tool of the enemy, I want to share with you this story, and I pray that it ministers to you in the same way that it did to me. Legend has it that one day the devil was having a garage sale, and he put his tools out, marking each one with a price. Some of the tools included were hatred, envy, jealousy, deceit, lying, and pride. Laid apart from these was a rather harmless-looking but well-worn marked tool at an extremely high price. A buyer pointed at this isolated tool and said, what is the name of this tool? The devil replied, that is discouragement. The buyer responded, and why have you priced it so high? To which the devil said, because it is more useful to me than the others. I can pry open a man's heart with that when I cannot get near to him with the other tools. Once inside, I can make him do whatever I choose. It is badly worn because I use it on almost everyone, since so few people know that it belongs to me. The devil's price for discouragement was so high, it is said, that this tool was never sold. He continues to use it on God's people, causing spiritual growth to be stifled and many worthwhile Christian projects to grind to a halt. It's powerful. And these are just three common ways that the enemy tries to stop us in this way. I would encourage you all to go get, at some point, the book, The Strategies of Satan by Warren Wearsby. It's a powerful, small book that will better equip you in identifying the ways that the enemy seeks to come against you. But back to Nehemiah chapter 4, a few verses down, in verses 7 and 8 and 10 through 12, we see Sanballat, Tobiah, and the surrounding nations, they get word of the progress of the wall, and they are upset. These enemies of God's people, they hear that the gaps in the wall are being closed, and so they get together to plan how they could attack the Jews 
who were building the wall and how they could confuse this work that they were engaged in. And these nations were literally on all sides of Jerusalem. The north, the south, the east, the west. Nehemiah and the Jews were surrounded. But listen to this portion of a psalm of David when David recalls times when he too was surrounded by the enemies of God. Psalm 27, verses 1 through 6. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. And get this, though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. In what? One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I will dwell, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. See, Nehemiah and the builders, they had been making some very significant progress on the wall. And because they were making this progress, because they were advancing, their enemies rose against them. And we know that Satan hates it when we make spiritual progress in our walks with the Lord. He hates it. You can be assured, I don't mean to discourage anyone by saying this, but it's just true. You can be assured that as you progress spiritually, there will be a progression of spiritual warfare in your life. It's going gonna, it's gonna to tick up a little bit. It's a pretty simple equation, honestly. Not very good with math, but I can understand this. That an increase in spiritual progress equals an increase in spiritual warfare. It's the reality. But what are we going to do in the face of adversity? Let's look at how Nehemiah and the builders faced the adversity they face, and let's, ha- let's look at how they responded with point number two, the appeal that they made. The appeal they made. Nehemiah, he responded to this adversity that they faced by appealing to God in prayer. What comes to my mind here is that picture of our first president, George Washington, kneeling at Valley Forge. Praying in the face of adversity. Nehemiah, he appealed to the God of Israel in light of what they were facing. And look at the transition. Look down at your Bibles. From verse 3, when Tobiah chimes in with his little comment. Look at verse 4. Look at that transition and see how literally the next verse, Nehemiah is praying to God. Nehemiah knew exactly what to do with the adversity, and that was to give it to the Lord in prayer. 
And we need to learn from Nehemiah's example here that when Satan attacks our lives and brings adversity upon us, we need to go straight to the feet of our Father in prayer. Prayer is how we fight. You've all heard and sung along to that famous song, The Battle Belongs, when it says, so when I fight, I will fight on my knees with my hands lifted high because, oh God, the battle belongs to you. And this should be how every child of God handles adversity. And unfortunately, I think all too many of us struggle in adversity because we do not effectively take it to the Lord in prayer. There's an old hymn that many of you, I'm sure, know, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And there are these powerful lines that say, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. It's amazing. We should take everything to the Lord in prayer. Are you encountering adversity or are you really going through some difficult spiritual warfare? Be like Nehemiah and take it to the Lord in prayer. Another man in the Bible who faced adversity with prayer was King Hezekiah. And I apologize in advance as we're about to read uh, this portion for my butchering of all these ancient names. But if you can just ignore my mispronunciation and follow along... That would be great. Second Kings 19, verses 8 through 19, and then we'll jump to verse 35 through 36. It says, Then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Taraka, king of Ethiopia, Look, he has come out to make war with you. So he again sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sephvarim, Hena and Iva, and Hezekiah? Here we go. This is what I want us to glean from this. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, I pray... 
save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. And then jump down to verse 35. It says, and it came to pass. This is how the Lord responds to Hezekiah's prayer. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch his god, that his sons Adramelech and Sherezer struck him down with the sword. How awesome is this, that this adversity comes to King Hezekiah. He takes that very letter into the temple, into the presence of God, and he lays it out, and he pleads with the Lord that God would intervene, and God did. Hezekiah understood that prayer changes things, and it is how we fight. Just like how Nehemiah, as we're looking right now, understood this. But what we need to recognize about the way that Nehemiah prayed is that in addition to praying, Nehemiah and the builders also took action. Our third point is the action they took. The action that Nehemiah and the builders took. And what I love about Nehemiah's response to this adversity is that he didn't simply pray in a way where he sat around and did nothing. He prayed in a way that caused him to take action. Right after his prayer in verse 5, in verse 6, you can look down and see that it says directly after, so we built the wall. They got right back to it. We see how Nehemiah and the builders, they stayed the course and they did not let the adversity they faced steer them away from the job that they knew God had called them to do. Nehemiah, he shared the same motivation and mindset of Paul the Apostle. In Acts 20, verses 22 through 24, it says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. Not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Nothing was going to stop Nehemiah and the builders from completing the work that God had given them to do. And because the people had a mind to work, this, this job was happening very quickly. And in verses 9, through, 9 and 13, we see how Nehemiah, he, he prayed and then he took action by setting a watch against the adversaries. A good principle to remember regarding prayer is that prayer ought to be paired with action. Think about it like this. If you're praying for a job and you're just sitting on your bum all day, you can't expect. I mean, come on. You pray and you go do your part. You put in applications. 
You ask God for favor with the company that you're applying for. And you go submit the application. God doesn't submit the application for you. He expects you to do it. Our prayer is paired with action. Many of us, we fail to pray in this way. Oh, Lord, God, would you just... God's like, I'll I'll keep my end of the deal. Now go on, get busy. (laughs) You see, a lot of believers, we're, we're all more than willing to pray... But there's a lot less of us who want to pair our prayer with action. And we, we especially see this in the realm of politics. It's not the case here at this church, as you know. But the church at large, many other churches, there's just far too many Christians who are like, yeah, you know, murdering of babies, I'll pray about that. But I'm not going to vote about it. I'm not going to go to Planned Parenthood and try to minister to women struggling with that decision. No, we we pray and we do. We respond. Our prayer is paired with action. I love this story of D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist. He was on a trip across the Atlantic Ocean when a fire broke out on the ship. Moody and his friend, they joined the crew and the other volunteers on the ship by passing buckets of water to be thrown on the fire. Seems natural. Moody's friend, so spiritual, listen to this. Mr. Moody, let us go to the other end of the ship to pray. And D.L. Moody, the common sense evangelist, said, No, sir, we stand right here and we pass buckets and pray hard all the time. That's how we should be. Prayer paired with action. Our final and closing point tonight, we've we've looked at the adversity that Nehemiah and the builders faced. We looked at the appeal to God that they made, and we just looked at the action that they took. Our last point tonight is the almighty they trusted. The almighty God that they trusted. You see, in reality, Nehemiah and the builders, they would have had every right to fear Sanballat's and Tobiah's threats if they weren't trusting in God. They would have had every right to fear. Were the Jews outnumbered and outgunned? Absolutely, they were. But it didn't matter because they knew. And Nehemiah was the leader of the charge. He knew that the Lord of heaven's armies was on their side. And it was his work that they were doing. It was the work of God. And when the Jews, those with Nehemiah, when they get word of the plans of the enemies of God, what these enemies were conspiring to do against them, surely in the builders there had to have been a little bit of fear. You know, Joshua, the Lord had to tell him several times, Do not fear. We're all guilty of having a little fear in our hearts sometimes. But will we trust God? Nehemiah, I love this. He turns to these likely fear-filled men. He turns to them, and it's like straight out of a scene of Lord of the Rings. I love it. Verse 14. Look down in your Bibles at this. You need to look as we read along. Verse 14, it says, Remember... The Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. 
That is a verse for today. We are in living in crazy town. This world has gone nuts. But are we just going to keel over and just give up? Oh, man, it's too far gone. I don't, no, I don't think so. Remember the Lord. Fight for your children. Fight for the school system. Fight for whatever it is that God has called you to fight for. We don't give up. When faced with adversity, as we seek to build God's kingdom, we must remember the power of the God that we serve. We serve the God of all creation, the Lord of hosts, the commander of the Lord's armies. We have no reason to fear. One of the titles of God that the children of Israel set up a monument to him is Yahweh Nisi. And it means the Lord is our banner. It's amazing. It's a a banner of victory, of how God is the victor. And I want you to look to the screens at these faith-boosting verses from when Israel was on the other side of the Jordan, soon to inherit the promised land. Deuteronomy 3.22, God or Moses says, the Lord speaks through Moses, you must not fear them, for the Lord your God himself fights for you. I just love so much that himself, even though it's a typo up there. Sorry to point that out. <laughs> I just saw a corner of my eye. The Lord your God himself fights for you. Deuteronomy 31.6, later on in the book of Deuteronomy, verse 6 and verse 8 says, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And the Lord, he is the one, verse 8, who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And what do we do in response? It says, do not fear nor be dismayed. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You see, Nehemiah and the builders no doubt trusted in the Lord. But they did not forego their responsibility to defend the wall and fight back against evil. This is important. Because many have a a counterfeit trust of God where, Lord, I'm going to trust you, but I'm not going to get in the fight. No, we got to get in the fight. This world's gone crazy. We are truly living in days where evil is advancing rapidly. We are to absolutely 100% trust the Lord, but we must also get in the fight. Gone are the days, if there ever were any days of spectator Christianity, they're gone. They're long gone. How can the church possibly bury its head in the sand in the face of such evil times? We can't do it. And because of the evil that surrounded them, Nehemiah and the builders, they built the wall with one hand. And I love, in the other hand, what did they have? 
They had a weapon. They had a sword. They had a spear. I saw a meme going around the internet. Some of you are like, what's a meme? Uh, It's like a picture with like a caption anyway. But I saw a meme going around recently. And it's, uh, maybe some of you have seen it. Um, it's, it's, like a, it's like a dad sitting in, it's like a cartoon, a dad sitting in uh, bed with his kids, and they have a bedtime story with them. And it says, parenting in 20, 2023 is like, and he's got, he's with his kids, he's got a shield, and on the other side of the shield are all these rainbows and demonic figures and everything, and he's just with his kids. And I actually think that's a pretty amazing thing to think about. It's like what we're reading here. In one hand, kingdom building, raising a child in the way they should go. In the other hand, defending against evil. It's amazing. This, should, this is how we should be as citizens of heaven engaged in a war against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Trusting in God does not mean that we sit on the sidelines and don't fight back. We trust God and we engage in the battle. How are you going to trust God if you're not in the battle? What are you trusting him about? <laughs> Get in the fight. Now, before we all, you know, right now, but I, like people go start grabbing their pitchforks and torches, we must remember that the fight we're in is a spiritual one, not a physical one. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6 says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That word carnal refers to the physical, the earthly. But they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Are we ready to punish all disobedience? I'm fired up. Let's go punish some disobedience. You see, this is the fight that we're in. It's a spiritual battle and it's taking place all around us. I wish we could all just put on like some some God-given goggles where we could just see the, the spiritual Forces just all around the world. It's crazy. It's, it, it is real. And we must be aware of it. What are you and I as Christ followers going to do? Are we going to sit the sidelines? What are we going to do in the face of adversity? You see, in closing, my prayer for us is that we would all be effective builders of God's kingdom. We mustn't let any adversity sway us from this resolve. We have a very real enemy. You'd be silly to think he's not real and that his attacks aren't real. He's against us. Satan is against us. All of his demons are against us. The world that we live in is against us. But... God's word gives us this amazing promise in the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans 8:31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
This is the difference maker. That our God is for us. And he is on our side. He's not on their side. He's on our side. Will we let adversity that we are facing and will face, will we let it sway us from our purpose to live as salt and light in this world? Proverbs 24.10 says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. And we are truly living in days of adversity. Not adversity, uh, you know, about this or that, but adversity against the kingdom of God. And as we are representatives of Christ, as we are ambassadors of Christ in this world, we have, to, we have to come to terms with the fact that we are going to face adversity. But what will we do? Will we faint? See, we don't have to faint in the day of adversity. Because we can give everything to our God in prayer. And we can trust him because we know that it is his work. We're not, we're not just doing our own thing. We're doing the work of the Lord. And I pray that you all would be engaged in the fight along with me, along with this church, that we would go out of this place galvanized for, for the word of God and for God's victory in the world. Let's pray as we close. Lord, so amazing that we're talking about all these things and we have the very spirit of Christ who raised Jesus from the dead. Lord, we have your Holy Spirit dwelling within us. You have not left us orphans. Your Holy Spirit is in us. You you have not left us nor forsaken us. We are not on our own in this fight. God, I pray for these people tonight, Lord, that as we go out of these doors, Lord, that we would rock this world for Jesus. Lord, may it be our our prayer Maybe not literally, but Lord, that when, whenever our time comes, Lord, that hell would have to cheer because we're out of the fight. Lord, we want to live like that. Strengthen us, Lord. These days are evil, and they wear us down. It is not easy to swim upstream or to go against the grain. Lord, would you strengthen the hearts of your people tonight? Renew us. Baptize us afresh in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.